episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala and I'm a junior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Career team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Mick Hirsch. Mick Hirsch is the Executive Director of Thrive Gulu, a nonprofit in northern Uganda which assists communities in um, a nonprofit in northern Uganda which assists communities to heal from the traumatic effects of war, sexual ex- exploitation, extreme poverty, and the resulting loss of opportunities by providing mental health, economic empowerment, and basic education programs. A graduate of the Yale Divinity School, Mick has worked as a hospital chaplain, as an academic teaching trauma recovery, and as a re- refugees affairs specialist, resettling hundreds of refugees in the U.S. and Cambodia. Thanks so much for being here today, Mick. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So you spent over 17 years in various professions that allow you to help and guide other people. What prompted you to work in trauma recovery? So originally I uh, entered Yale Divinity School with the the intention of studying religion and literature and going on to academia. I had done my undergraduate work at the University of Chicago and was an English literature major there. while I was at the University of Chicago, I took a number of courses at the University of Chicago Divinity School in religion and literature, and it just kind of became a passion and, and a love of mine. And so when I was thinking about going on to graduate school, the Yale University Divinity School had a very strong RNL department. We call it RNL religion and literature. They had a strong RNL department, and um, it was something that I wanted to pursue. Um, again, thinking I would go on to uh, a career as a professor and research in, in academia. Um, it just so happened that at the very beginning of my second year at the, at the university, um, September 11th happened. Um, I happened to be working at a church in southern Fairfield County, uh, which wasn't too far from New York City, and it was kind of a feeder community to, into New York City, um, specifically into kind of the Wall Street area. And um, when September 11th happened, it was uh, such a traumatic event, um, not only to me, but to really, I think, our whole country. Um, But I felt kind of acutely uh, uh, disturbed by by all of the events and also by the fact that I just didn't know how to respond to it to help the people that I was supposed to be helping, namely the youth group that I was was working with and for uh, down in New Canaan, Connecticut. And uh, so that was really, really, really difficult for me because um, I just didn't have the skills and the, and, and the knowledge to, to be able to sit down and, and, and talk to people and, and know how to listen and know how to help. So that's when I started getting an interest into trauma and trauma recovery. And uh, I radically shifted my uh, academic program away from uh, religion and literature, which I still kind of continued and still love as, as a more of like a hobby. Um, but I uh, switched to uh, hospital chaplaincy, um, specifically psychiatric chaplaincy, and um, just kind of pursued a, a career then in trauma recovery, helping people who had experienced all kinds of trauma. And so then how did that end up transitioning to um, working more with refugees in Cambodia and also Uganda? 
I ended up doing my uh, chaplaincy residency. So it's very common for people who want to go into professional chaplaincy that um, you, you usually do at least one year of residency program at um, usually a, a medical facility. And so I did that at Grady Memorial Hospital down in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which also has kind of a reputation of being a, a hospital that, that receives a lot of uh, cases of, of uh, violence and, and other kinds. It's a level one trauma hospital, so they, they get a lot of uh, uh, difficult uh, cases of, of both physical and also um, mental and emotional trauma. While I was working there um, and doing my residency in the psychiatry department, um, I met my first refugee. Um, and I was, uh, I was a refugee from uh, Rwanda, and I was just uh, really uh, moved by you know, sitting down and learning about the experience, the story, um, uh, you know, what kind of uh, journey that uh, that particular individual and then um, several other refugees that I eventually met while I was working in the hospital, um, what they had endured, what they had experienced, um, how they had uh, kind of overcome it, um, and yet also how they uh, continued to struggle with um, the invisible wounds of, of trauma. And so that's, um, that's kind of what got me into working um, not only with refugees, but also with the immigrant community um, in the United States. I, I, after I completed my residency year, I moved back to New Haven actually, and um, did, uh, I worked uh, in Hartford at um, the St. Francis uh, Hospital and Medical Center in their psychiatric ward. And I also did a bit of um, trauma in, uh, intervention and crisis intervention work as a chaplain at the Yale New Haven Hospital. And for those who aren't as familiar, how would you describe the work of a chaplain? Um, well, it kind of varies, uh, actually. So, um, so the way I'll, I'll just kind of describe the way that, that I approached it. So, um, so I actually had gone to the Yale Divinity School thinking that not only would I become an, uh, an, an academic, but I was also um, kind of responding to a call to ministry at the time. And so I entered on the ordination track in the United Methodist Church. Um, and I mean, in, in, I, you know, I certainly wanted to serve the church, but it was also something that I kind of saw myself going, uh, going into academia in uh, a, a theological school. So teaching at a place like the uh, University of Divinity School or Duke Divinity School or Harvard Divinity School, something like that. So I kind of saw myself in, in that kind of a place um, as opposed to like the Graduate School of uh, Arts and Sciences or something like that. Um, when I started doing chaplaincy, however, uh, one of the things that I learned really quickly was that um, I found it more advantageous that when I walked into a room to speak with, uh, with a particular patient, that I walked in the room as somebody who, that I just walked in the room as Mick, that I didn't walk into the room as Reverend Mick, who was a United Methodist minister or something like that. Um, that I just kind of walked in as somebody who uh, who cared and who um, wanted to sit and listen and show compassion and empathy and um, try to support that person through a very difficult time and try to support the family and um, and uh, you know whatnot. So uh, so the work of a chaplain then became for me um, kind of uh, kind of like a, a companion um, along a very difficult journey. Um, and a listener, 
um, and somebody who would just um, provide the support that, that a person needed, regardless of, of where they were at in their in their particular spiritual and, and religious um, uh, you know identity. So, uh, okay, you know, fairly often I would pray with with people, um, although certainly not not always. Um, I always took the approach that I would never ask myself if if someone wanted prayer rarely i mean maybe once in a while i would do it but but rarely would i ask i usually left it to the person that if if they saw in me as a chaplain that and they felt like they wanted prayer then i would certainly offer it but um but i was really trying to just provide um pastoral counseling which um which was uh you know really just just uh not not unlike the sort of counseling you would receive from a from a, a licensed therapist or a psychologist or something like that. Um, so that's that, that's basically what what I what I did as as a chaplain. I really like this idea of of being a companion with someone as they walk along these really dark roads and and I like how that um, approach allows it to be a very personal relationship between you and whoever needs your help. Yeah, it's it 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 can it it can be very powerful, and you know, as a chaplain, um, you you go into a, a patient's room with the uh, recognition that uh, that may be the only time you ever see that person, um, that that you may spend you know ten minutes or twenty minutes or a half hour with with a person and 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 a family, um, and that's it. You may never see them again. At the same time, you may see, you know, they may have a, a hospital stay that, that keeps them there for three weeks or something, in which case you may see them repeatedly over time. And that actually, that, that experience actually of, um, of understanding that, uh, that there is something powerful in a, in a short-term in, encounter, um, and that even that, that short walk that you take, you know, maybe from, uh, maybe from your garage to the end of your driveway, uh, can be a very meaningful, you know, as, as a metaphor, can be a very meaningful um, walk in itself. And when I started to transition into international work and the number of clients that I would work with um, started to get from, you know, maybe, um, you know, a few, maybe like a hundred or a few hundred during, during a day in, in a, or I mean, during, during a year, um, working in a hospital. Um, and all of a sudden internationally, I started like my current job. I, you know, we have 35,000 people or something like that. Now I don't provide direct counseling to them, but, um, I have a counseling team and it's, it's overwhelming to think of the fact that in an area that has, you know, about two and a half million people, all of whom were, were severely traumatized by a particular war, um, and all of whom really uh, need and deserve some kind of counseling for the most part. I mean, it's, it's a rather ubiquitous need, I think. Um, you, know, rather, you know, rather than adopting a lot of traditional Western style approaches and methodologies and modalities of, of counseling, like something like um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is still practiced in, in, in Uganda and our team still you know, kind of considers it, but rather than following a protocol where we're, where we're needing to conduct you know, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 sessions with a single person, uh, that's just not practical over there. So, um, the, uh, so I think that having that experience as a chaplain where um, you recognize that even in very short encounters, you can have a meaningful um, experience that something, you know, something very powerful and, and miraculous can happen in that short period of time. 
Um, so that's where that kind of spiritual component comes in in, a, in chaplaincy, and that's where even though um, what I do now is is purely secular, I don't you know I work for an, an organization that's purely secular, um, but there's still that kind of spiritual component I think that pops up uh, or is capable of popping up even in short-term encounters if you only have one or two visits with the person. And within your work, both domestically and internationally, what challenges have you encountered? Um, working and engaging with vulnerable communities. And also going off of that, how do you measure success? Um, wow, those are, <laughs> those are tough questions, Claire. <laughs> so I, I guess I would say that, um, uh, you know, in, international work is, uh, is, is one of the most satisfying things that, that, I, that you can do, especially if you, if you love kind of, you know, traveling and meeting people from different places, different cultures, different, um, different uh, societies, traditions, all those kinds of things. So um, if, you, if you enjoy that, which is something that I certainly do, um, it's, it's incredibly satisfying to know that you can um, kind of go to a, a, a different place, a place that is very, um, that, that is uh, truly foreign uh, to, to you, um, and uh, kind of begin to integrate into, into this, this life um, of, of people there and, uh, and, and begin to be um, a partner of theirs. So I really see the international experience um, as being partners because, um, uh, for example, leading up to my time when I, when I worked in, in Cambodia, I knew quite a bit about Southeast Asia. Um, and I knew quite a bit about Cambodia. I'm actually married to a Cambodian woman, so I, I have a Cambodian family. And so I, I knew quite a bit about that particular area. Um, when I started working in Uganda, um, I knew next to nothing about Africa. So it was, it was uh, entirely a learning experience for me. And I absolutely had to rely on, on the local population and even those people who I was serving uh, as partners to, to, help me, um, to help me help them and to help me help them to help themselves. Um, so, uh, so that, that part of, uh, of international work, I, I think is, is very re rewarding. Um, it's also extraordinarily challenging. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it can be very difficult to, to live in a place and be immersed in a place. I lived three years in Cambodia. Um, I loved it, but at the same time, it is, it's, it's certainly not, not always easy, um, to live in a place that isn't home. I um, now I, I have a, a job that I, I like very much because I work uh, much of the year from my home in Massachusetts and travel a few times a year, usually for about three or four weeks at a time. Um, so usually around three or four months a year I spend in Uganda. So some of the challenges are, you know, living abroad can be difficult, but it, it, it's also extraordinarily rewarding. Um, and um, in terms of other challenges, uh, especially as, as the executive director of an, of an organization, one of the things you, you worry about a lot is, is funding the organization and keeping the organization going. When I worked in Cambodia, I worked um, with the UNHCR, which is the refugee wing of the, of, of the United Nations. Um, of course, that's a, that's a massive organization um, that's well-funded, although it's always underfunded. It never has enough money to really support refugees across the world um, in, a, in a way that they, that they um, need, um, that satisfies the need. Um, but after I worked in that particular, um, at, at that particular level, and uh, when I was in Cambodia, I was overseeing kind of a, a nationwide uh, urban refugee project. So it was, it was quite a large uh, 
project, at least geographically. Um, and, uh, and then it was also with the UNHCR. Well, I kind of realized that, you know, working with it, with the UNHCR was, was, was okay. Um, there were certainly things that I didn't care, uh, as much about it. And one, one of those things that I found really difficult was, um, just the bureaucracy of everything. Um, it was, it was often hard and frustrating to get things, uh, done to make suggestions about how to improve programs and that sort of thing, because there was just always a slow and tedious process to get, um, to get some of that done. Um, so when I, when I left Cambodia and then I, um, wanted to continue to work in international, uh, work, but I decided that I wanted to try working for a small organization. So the organization I work for now, Thrive, is, is very small. Um, and uh, we, we have a, a budget of a little under $500,000 a year. Um, and it's hard to maintain a small organization like that. Um, the, the good things about it are you have a much more kind of personal uh, relationship um, with your staff. You have a very personal relationship with the people you serve. Um, it's really a grassroots local organization, and I and I really, really, really like that. I like that so much. Um, but it's again, it's very hard to keep to sustain. It's very hard to to keep um, to, to keep going uh, with with regards to with, with regards to funding and, and revenue. Um, the reality is that um, I can do fundraising, um, but it's hard to convince people that this this relatively um specialized uh project that i'm that we're working on in is is uh, is something they want to contribute that they would want to contribute to so we're working in northern uganda with survivors of a war that took place um years ago it started in 1986 um granted it went for about 20 years but um, but people are, you know, now still recovering from, from trauma, um, and uh, and and our job is is in mental health and trauma recovery. So it's difficult to convince a lot of people that that's something that is is worth them spending a lot of money on, you know, their 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 money on. Um, a lot of people. One of the things I hear all the time is, "Why would I want to spend? Why would I want to contribute to an organization like yours that works overseas when I when I look out out, out my window and I see so much need right here in my community?" Um, and I totally get that. I completely understand, you know, why people think that and and um, and why um, it's it's hard for them to make that leap that you know helping people who they would never see a lot of them would never you know will never travel to Uganda um, why that's why that's important it's it's also hard you know a lot of people think okay well I can understand something like a refugee crisis Thrive does work with refugees we work with South Sudanese refugees um, but you know a lot of people see okay well a refugee crisis or a natural disaster or a famine or something like that um, something that's kind of urgent need, I, you know, a lot of people will want to respond to that. Something that is, um, the, you know, 15 years out from a, from, from a conflict where people are still struggling with, uh, with, with trauma, it's a little harder to, to convince. So those are some of the really, really difficult, um, you know, challenges that, that, I, that, that I face. Hmm. And what advice would you have for students who are interested in doing humanitarian work? Like, what kind of qualities do you think are important? Um, so, 
you know, I, I certainly think that, it, you know, a, a genuine interest in, in learning about local contexts is, um, is, is really important. Um, I think that, um, you, 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 like people need to suspend their, their, their judgments and assumptions about a lot of things. Um, and that doesn't just mean suspend their judgments about the, the, the people and the places that, that they would potentially go work in overseas. It also means, you know, um, suspending some of your judgments and assumptions about um, how successful or how, um, how uh, reliable certain, cer certain tools are that you might have learned in, in college or graduate school. Um, where you you know you've been taught and almost kind of brainwashed that this is the way you need to do it, um, when in fact uh, the way that you need to do it is oftentimes uh, the last thing that you need to do. And and like I kind of alluded to before, um, you know what I have found is that a lot of the traditional methodologies that we learn in the West um, just simply don't apply to people in in uh, different parts of the world. The, I mean, the, the whole linguistic apparatus around something like depression is not something that, um, that, uh, that, that people even have a concept of in a lot of different parts of the world. So if you're trying to measure or test or um, you know, uh, assess whether a person has depression, um, you can't just ask them, oh, are you depressed? Um, you know, they have very different things. So, um, so you know, something, uh, you know, something like depression in, in Cambodian society is that um, you've, you've lost, you, you've lost your wind um, that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of breathless or it feels like someone's standing on your chest. Um, in Ugandan society, it's that you feel like your brain is dying. Um, and so you, you've really got to like understand that, um, you know, when, when you, when you look at assessments that are assessment tools that we have, that we learn about in, in America or in other parts of, of uh, the Western world, um, it, you can't just bring those in and expect them to work. You can't just bring them in and, and, and expect them to help. So you need to really have an, an, an open mind about, um, uh, about learning and immersing yourself in, in how other people live and how other people think and how other people, um, what other people's needs truly are. You don't want to just assume that their needs are, are such and such. The other thing that I would recommend is, um, and this kind of relates, is uh, don't read the literature of the discipline that you think you're supposed to read. Um, in other words, like, you know, I think, uh, I, I never read psychology. Um, my feeling is that if you want to learn about people, read a novel or watch a watch a film that's that's uh, you know created by um, a, a local filmmaker or um, read the local re read poetry that comes from from that local context. Read philosophy. Read um, read things that are going to kind of like expand your way of of, of thinking so that you're really critically engaging um, thought um, and people more so than uh than than the than the the, the methodologies and and kind of you know certain theories that that um really are just going to kind of like get you get you all mixed up and uh we're about to coming to or about coming to the end of our um time here but i'd love to ask you what are your hopes for the future my personal hopes 
whatever whatever that that means to you um okay well first of all i immediately i i hope we get over this coronavirus thing yes <laughs> likewise so, <laughs> so, so let's just let's just get rid of that and it's it's comforting to me that um that you know we're all kind of uh affiliated with a, a, an institution of, of higher learning that uh has uh doctors and and, and researchers and uh public health uh workers and this sort of thing who uh are at the front lines of of, of this whole thing so you know certainly i want to want to uh hope for that and that and that people stay safe and healthy um and in in terms of my my own self um I, you know, I think I'd, I'd, I'd love to continue doing international work. I'd love to be able to um, expand a little bit while not, uh, not growing too big. So um, I, I mentioned that right now, our, so our organization kind of started in, in Uganda, in Northern Uganda. Um, but now we just recently started working with South Sudanese refugees. So one thing that I'd like that I'd love to see is is that um, once the situation in South Sudan kind of becomes a little bit more peaceful and, and safe for people to repatriate, um, I'd love to open an office in South Sudan so that we can kind of provide the similar sort of uh, services that uh, we do with uh, Ugandans in, in to, for the South Sudanese in their, in their homeland. So something like that. And then, you know, maybe even um, look to other places in, in East Asia or even not even in, in necessarily in East Asia, but in other parts of the world where um, people have been traumatized and will be re repatriating um, and uh, just might need that, that's, that the, the unique support that I think Thrive offers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. This was really awesome and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, like I said, stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, I also hope that all the students uh, out there who are listening are able to get back to a uh, uh, kind of normal edu education yeah. <laughs> where, where they're on campus and they can engage their peers and their professors uh, in, in person. Thank you.